Come in, come in, and welcome to the Cave of the Eco Chamber. This is a podcast brought to you by the journalists of Ends Report, exploring the most important environmental policy in the UK with me, your host, James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be bringing you an exclusive on the EA's attempts to massage their own compliance figures, as well as the Office for Environmental Protection's scathing review on the government's progress towards meeting its environment targets. For our deep dive, we'll be speaking to an environmental lawyer on nutrient neutrality and the impact that's been felt on the ground. So let's adventure together in this week's Eco Chamber! First up, it's an ENDS exclusive that some environment agency staff were told last autumn to stop inspecting the most poorly performing waste sites until this year. Crazy story, Pippa, why on earth would the EA staff be directed to stop inspecting sites? So in short, it was so they could meet their corporate compliance targets or corporate KPIs, key performance indicators. Um, But this doesn't look good. Um, One environment agency insider told me that it's basically just an attempt to massage the figures to basically make the situation seem better than it is. And why then would the EA want those figures to look better? So under the Environment Agency's corporate KPI, the regulator aims to ensure that 97% of all regulated sites are complying with these targets. And in one of the emails that we're going to discuss in a minute, the team lead in Nottingham basically explained that this target is coming under heavy scrutiny at the moment. So they were basically pausing inspections so that they could meet this target because they're kind of under so much pressure to do so. Okay. So to get to those targets, how does the agency work out, you know, one waste site from another? So the agency basically works out a compliance rating of a waste site or any regulated site based on a point system. Um, And this is kind of collected over over a calendar year. um, And each site is placed into one of six compliance bands ranging from A to F. Um, Sites in bands A and B have demonstrated an expected level of compliance with their permit. Sites in bands C and D must improve in order to achieve compliance, and sites in bands E and F must significantly improve in order to achieve compliance. Um, And importantly, this score determines the annual subsidence fees that regulated firms must pay to the Environment Agency. So then how do we know that the EA is, you know, as your insider put it, trying to massage the numbers? So in an email which was handed to me by um, somebody that works in the Environment Agency, a senior installations manager for waste sites in Nottingham emailed junior officers on the 20th of September last year to warn that the region was at risk of missing this 97% target. Because of this, in the email, the manager asked the officers to pause until January work, which is not absolutely necessary to do now. The team leader emphasised that it's important that they maintain this corporate target as far as we can. As they said, it's an externally reported KPI that's coming under heavy scrutiny at the moment. And what's quite interesting about about all of this is that an environment agency insider told me that what they described as being evil about this instruction is that it relates to the most poorly performing sites. So the team leader is basically saying, stop looking at the sites which we know are the worst, which we know have the potential to be having the the biggest environmental impact. Um, The insider told me that this is indicative of the fact we are failing to do our statutory duty in a timely manner. And they said it's a method of massaging the figures to make it appear that the situation is better than it is. 
They said that as soon as you know a site is causing problems, then you need to deal with it. But an easy way to make that problem go away is to just not see the site as a problem. The external problem hasn't gone away, they said, but what the officers are doing here is trying not to create an internal problem by pretending they haven't noticed it. I mean, that's massive, isn't it? Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. On a point of KPIs, key performance indicators, what are they? Just so I get that clear. So um, across the whole environment agencies, so the target is that 97% of sites are within bands A, B and C. So we're complying with their permits, meaning that 3% of sites can be in D, E and F. And in Nottingham, where this story is focused, that meant that only 23 sites could be in bands D, E and F. So the um, the there was two senior installation managers that were kind of involved in this instruction, and they said we are aiming for twenty three sites, no more. Um, the conversations continued with the managers saying that in the meantime we can decide the best way to deal with the banned U sites without setting hairs off that we can't control or don't have the resources to deal with. And banned U sites are the sites that they haven't yet inspected. So it's basically like saying we'll work out what to do if these sites happen to be in D, E and F, then we'll kind of rethink our situation. But for now, any sites that you think could be in bands D, E and F, don't look at them till January. Right, excellent. I mean, it's pretty explosive. Mm. What what have the EA staff said to you about all this? Well, it's quite interesting because this wasn't said to me, but the um, one of the junior officers who was kind of working in the East Midlands and was given this instruction raised concerns because obviously as an environment agency officer, your job is to inspect these these waste sites and you know particularly to inspect the poorly performing waste sites because there's many you know it could be causing an environmental issue a public health issue like you know it's important that these sites get looked at and they raise concerns about specific waste sites which I can't reveal because that could identify my source um but they're in the east midlands region. yeah but in the east midlands they said you know I'm really concerned about a number of waste sites and I don't feel comfortable with this direction to which they were told by their manager Um, I'll quote this here. It says, if you still feel uncomfortable with our direction when you've seen the reviews and reflected on our best course of action, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to work on other projects instead that have a higher priority to us to remove any conflicts that may exist for you. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty startling because, you know, imagine kind of going to your manager saying, I don't feel comfortable that you're basically asking me to, you know, stop doing my statutory duty in order to kind of falsely inflate the figures. And when you raise those concerns, rather than being kind of listened to or properly discussed, you're basically told if you're not happy, you can move on. Um, And the insiders in the environment agency who I've spoken to told me that this particular kind of line upset a lot of colleagues in that office. Um, And in general, those that work, because, you know, obviously the message gets around that this is what you know, is happening in Nottingham and that that instruction upset a lot of people that work in the regulated industry kind of permitting teams Um, because, you know, they basically said they felt the managers were saying, we don't care about your professional judgment. We're just chasing a number. Outside of the Environment Agency organisation, what's been the response to your story? So Hilda Palmer, who's the chair of the Hazards Campaign, which is a network of campaigners supporting health and safety regulation, told me that what is so alarming about these emails is it reveals how, in quotes, systemic and dishonest the agency is. 
She said that staff are basically being asked to engage in what is borderline criminality, at least by cooking the books. And she said they're being asked to do the Lord Nelson thing of putting up the telescope to the eye and saying, I see no ships. They're basically saying, if you don't see it, it doesn't exist, she said. I mean, that's damning, isn't it? Mm. Um, And I got another interesting response from Dr. Anna Willett, who's an environmental criminal lawyer and partner at Gunnacook. Um, And she told me that this kind of revelation could have legal consequences for the Environment Agency if someone was to bring a judicial review against a specific waste site then you could basically say, well, we know, you know, that you paused inspection work for a number of months from September to January. Um, and kind of obviously that goes against the statutory duty of the Environment Agency. I mean, yes, yeah, serious implications, really. And presumably the Environment Agency press office didn't agree with that claim. Yeah. So an Environment Agency spokesperson told me that these claims are incorrect. And they said our work to regulate these sites did not stop. We are responsible for over 600 waste and installation sites in the East Midlands, and it is not unusual to prioritise work on those which pose the greatest risk to the environment, for example, those with hazardous waste. They said that last year, all sites received the necessary inspections by our officers, and we already have compliance plans in place for the forthcoming year to ensure they meet our high standards. But what is interesting about that is when I kind of put the Environment Agency's response to my contact in the Environment Agency... They basically said that this is disingenuous because, you know, how do you define necessary inspections? It's up to those team leaders to define necessary inspections. And if they're saying it's not necessary to inspect those sites, then they did do the necessary inspections. They said to me that the subtext of that statement is that the Environment Agency officers define what necessary looks like. And what these individuals said was that for those poorly performing sites, we are not going to look. It's like putting a telescope up to your blind eye and saying, what signal? I see no signal, they said. Mm, Lots of telescopes looking down the wrong holes and not seeing it. Okay, for our next and final story, we're looking at the Office for Environmental Protection's first major review of the government's plan to improve the environment. And their conclusions are pretty damning. Pippa, why is the OEP so upset? So there's a lot of reasons, but... The big headline figure that came from this report is that the government um, is on track to meet just 10% of its own green targets as set out in the 2023 Environment Improvement Plan or EIP. Um, And this EIP itself outlines the steps that the government intends to take to improve the natural environment, including the measures needed to meet its statutory targets on biodiversity, water, marine protected areas, air quality and resource management. Um, But according to the latest assessment by the OEP, for the 40 environmental targets that it assessed, including those set out under the Environment Act, the government is largely on track to achieve four, partially on track to achieve 11, and largely off track to achieve 10. They said that progress towards a further 15 targets couldn't be assessed due to a lack of evidence. I'm no expert, but that doesn't sound good. Mm. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, to say the least... Um, the OEP chair, Dame Glenis Stacey, warned that while some progress has been made, it is deeply, deeply concerning that adverse environmental trends continue. Um, and Richard Benwell, who's the chief executive of the Wildlife and Countryside Link Coalition, said that if the government doesn't double down on delivery of its nature promises, then its hopes of meeting the positive promises in the Environment Act will remain daydreams. So then... To me, that sounds like the OEP is going to start legal proceedings against DEFRA. 
Well, no, not that we know of. Um, So in a carefully worded response to a press briefing um, to journalists, the OEP's chief executive, Natalie Prosser, said that the watchdog was going to be taking an increasingly keen interest in progress against these targets. But she said, at the moment, we can see that meeting particularly the target to halt the decline of species by 2030 is at risk. But with the right speeding up and scaling up, that this could be addressed. Um, She continued that the OEP are concerned that time will be short to get a grip on that and there will come a point where their degree of confidence um, will diminish. But she said whether that will result in legal action is entirely contingent on whether that indicates that the government is in fact in breach of law and that that breach of law is amendable to remedy through investigation and enforcement. Um, So, yeah, basically not yet, but potentially so the OEPs arrived at this position because of where it thinks the government is at in key policy areas. Can you just take us through some of those conclusions? So the OEP's report covers kind of several key areas. So nature, water, air, waste and resources and chemicals. On nature and achieving the nature targets that are set out in the 2023 Environmental Improvement Plan, The OEP said that prospects are still highly dependent on the successful delivery of policies that are still in development. Um, In particular, it pointed to nature-friendly farming, so the rollout of environmental land management schemes, the revised UK marine strategy, and also the mobilisation of green finance. Um, On the target to improve the condition of protected sites, an area that's been kind of a big focus for green groups, The OEP said that the government has already missed the target set in the previous strategy paper, Biodiversity 2020, of ensuring that at least 50% of sites of special scientific interest, or SSSIs, were in a favourable condition. It's now set a new target relevant to SSSIs, which, while the OEP said is more ambitious, which is for 75% of protected sites to be in favourable condition, the OEP said it has a more distant horizon of 2042 some 22 years after the earlier missed deadline. Mm, Push it back and uh, let's see what government will do in the future. Interesting strategy. Another area which campaigners, you know, are really strong on is rivers and water pollution. Um, What was the OEP's assessment there? On the EIP goal of clean and plentiful water, the OEP says that the scale and pace of delivery of actions is not aligned with the objective Um, to achieve good ecological status or potential by 2027. They said that the river-based management plans indicate low confidence in achieving this. Okay, what's a river basin management plan? So they're basically marked out sections of water bodies in England, so kind of a bit like jigsaw pieces, which together make up water catchment areas in England. Um, And they've been ascribed by the Environment Agency as really important as they set the legally binding and locally specific environmental objectives that underpin water regulation, such as permitting and planning activities. Often tied to water is chemicals. What's the OEP said about that? Yeah, so they were pretty strong on chemicals and pesticides um, and basically said that, you know, they couldn't assess a lot of this because the government isn't kind of providing the data. So they said that while the government has the potential to meet its mercury target, that significant work is still to be done and that it was unable to assess um, persistent organic pollutants or POPs and PCB targets. I mean, they said that the lack of key policies and regulatory frameworks results in uncertainty whether the government will achieve its ambitions. Um, And it emphasised that 
data on chemicals emissions to air, water and land cover very few chemicals out of the thousands released to the environment. So basically they just couldn't really assess progress because the government doesn't seem to be providing the data or effectively kind of measuring. And yeah, chemical kind of policy is an area that is beset with delays, something we've talked about a lot on the eco chamber and write about a lot on ENS report. So yeah, I guess the OEP got that message loud and clear. And you're big into air pollution and waste pollution. Not that you're a fan of it, but you do cover it a lot. What do the OEPs say about those areas? So on air quality, the OEP report states that the government is on track to achieve the Environment Act interim target for an annual mean concentration for particulate matter and the population exposure reduction target for PM2.5 or particulate matter. And PM2.5, just as a reminder, that's sort of any particulates in the air that are less than 2.5 micrometres in diameter, which for scale, if you can pull um, one of your hairs from your head right now, the width of that human hair is roughly 70 micrometres that you're feeling. And that's so we're talking about 30 times smaller than that just for scale. Yeah, so these are really kind of tiny pollutants, which is what makes them so harmful to human health. So yeah, it's great that the government is on track with those interim targets, but the OEP warned that projections suggest that the government is not on track to meet four out of five of the UK emission reduction commitments for 2030 under the current policies and measures. Um, And this is quite interesting because we've spoken a lot on ENDS and on the Eco Chamber about these emission reductions commitments, because basically the government, in order to kind of outline how it's going to achieve these emission reduction commitments, which are a retained EU law, the government publishes a national air pollution control programme, which kind of outlines the steps it's taking. Um, But the government recently, under the Retained EU Law Act, revoked the requirement to publish this plan. So basically revoked the requirement to kind of publish its workings to explain how it's going to meet these emission reduction commitments. Um, and I previously revealed that in deciding to revoke this, these regulations that require this plan, that the government ignored the advice of ministers. I mean, this is something that the OEP talked about in the report. They kind of raised concerns about the revocation of this plan. And, you know, they said that this kind of leaves space for kind of further environmental regression. Now, presumably, the government then is listening to what the OEP has said. Well, we hope so, I guess. Um, So Environment Minister Rebecca Powell said that since 2010, the government has created or restored habitat the size of Dorset and in the last six months alone has implemented a ban on single-use plastics, begun the process of creating a new national park and planted nearly five million trees, while also working with farmers to launch 35 new landscape recovery projects. She said, we were always clear that our targets are ambitious and would require significant work to achieve but we are fully committed to creating a greener country for future generations and going further and faster to deliver for nature. We will carefully review the OEP's findings and respond in due course, she said. Interesting one to watch. Time now for our moment of the week, where we reflect on something fun, cool, interesting, quirky, um, or something we might not have covered in the Big Green News. Pippa, what was your moment of the week? So I saw a great story this week on the BBC um, about some parrots that kind of got into trouble in Lincolnshire. So at Lincolnshire Wildlife Park, it made headlines in 2020, it made global headlines apparently, according to the BBC, after staff removed five African grey parrots from display after they were swearing at visitors. 
Since then, three more parrots have started to squawk expletives, prompting an urgent change in tactics. Um, Chief Executive of the Wildlife Park, Steve Nichols, said he was about to introduce these parrots to the rest of the flock in a bid to dilute the swearing. (laughs) Um, It's hoped that they'll now start to copy more appropriate vocabulary and noises from the remainder of the flock, he said. Um, And I quite liked this quote from Mr Nichols. He said, You never tire of being told to F off by a parrot. You can't help but laugh. Of course, visitors stand around the enclosure swearing, trying to get parrots to copy them. (laughs) Excellent. That is a fantastic moment of the week. Um, mine's uh, slightly more serious. Uh, it's uh, Guy Singh Watson, um, who is a British farmer, founder of Riverford, a UK-wide organic vegetable box delivery company, who was this week standing in front of the Houses of Parliament alongside 49 scarecrows. <laughs> um, and that was cool in and of itself, but that those 49 was to represent a poll that was taken... Um, that suggested that 49% of farmers in this country are um, worried about going out of business next year uh, because of all the political turmoil that's going on in the food system. Sing Watson's basic argument is that the supermarkets, he said, quote, have destroyed British agriculture. Those are his words, not mine. Um, And as a result, there's actually a debate in the Commons at the time of this recording, um, which should have been argued as a result of the petition, to amend the grocery supply code of practice to require retailers without exception to buy what they agreed to pay, pay what they agreed to pay and pay on time. So I love it when a political campaign um, gets the headlines and I particularly love the scarecrows too. Mm. (laughs) Time for our deep dive. In June 2019, six months before the COVID-19 pandemic gripped the United Kingdom, Nutrient Neutrality was born. Wildlife regulator Natural England advised local authorities that new developments in the highly protected Solent region on the south coast of England should only be permitted if they were nitrogen neutral. Their worry was that nutrient enrichment was leading to eutrophication, whereby nitrate and phosphorus overloading those macronutrients were encouraging algae blooms to starve the Solent waters of oxygen, killing aquatic species. Four and a half years on, and nutrient neutrality is still with us. Tracy Lovejoy, a senior associate lawyer at Irwin Mitchell, joined me on the Eco Chamber to help me get to grips with the nitrogen and phosphorus-rich dilemma. Take a listen. Tracy, welcome to the Eco Chamber. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask you from a legal perspective, first off, can you just give our listeners an overview of the Dutch nitrogen case sort of in layman terms, and, and how environment regulators like Natural England interpreted that case law? Um, yeah, I can. So the Dutch nitrogen case was about um, nitrogen and other um, chemicals being released from manure, really, and, and feces, cows in, in, in the Netherlands. Um, and they their protected sites are exceeding levels like sites all over the world it's not a new issue i think i read an article saying it it's been going on for about 50 years but what changed it in that case is that the government said that the the generic policy as is being described their policy wasn't sufficient to satisfy the um eu directive that required um 
public authorities, like planning authorities, only to grant planning permission or give consent if there were no adverse effects um, on the protected sites. The protected sites, of course, relates to um, um, habitats and obviously that relates to to species. Um, and um, I, I think that was the sort of game changer, if you like. Um, they had to look at it at a case-by-case case basis and the requirement was that there was no adverse effect except in some um, exceptional cases. Um, so how that was taken by Natural England. So for instance, I, I, I worked in the Herefordshire, I was working in the Herefordshire and um, Shropshire area at, at, at the time. And how that was taken by Natural England was to, was basically to look at what's being done in respect of those protected sites, um, special areas of conservation. They all had plans and they were all working their way through plans to bring their sites onto, in, into favorable conditions. But um, Natural England issued advice saying that's not sufficient. If, you're, if your site's in an unfavorable um, position, you cannot grant planning permission unless you can assure that there's no advert, there, there are no adverse effects. Um, and I think that's, that, that was the shift that, that led to uh, this advice being given to various authorities. I think we're up to 74 now. Um, and, and, and that was the difficulties because um, th that was kind of a new thing and the, the, the knowledge and technology wasn't really there and, and, and the industry had to start over again, looking at, looking at this. And I suppose another angle to that was um, uh, the, the precautionary principle and making sure that um, essentially that, that, that the, uh, and any mitigation measures were scientifically robust. So um, that that's that's sort of how the nitrogen case has played out really in, in the UK, especially in England. And how then did that impact your clients on the ground, that advice? So at the time I dealt with housing developers and farmers, uh, I think the housing developers were most hard hit because there was this advice where they, they had to come up with solutions and those solutions had to satisfy understandably nervous local planning authorities that um, they would be, um, they would, they would be sort of beyond reasonable doubt, grant nutrient neutrality. Um, and they just couldn't get planning permission for their sites. Um, some of them had gotten a stage of planning permission, but couldn't get the next stage of planning permission just because um, there was some, difficulties convincing um, local planning authorities who were, were working very hard to come up with calculators, to come up with methods, to come up with, uh, and of course, Natural England was at, at the time, but at that time, it just left them in limbo. Um, and I think another angle to it, it, was, it was more than an idea, probably the fact that the real the larger part of these nutrients were coming from what 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 was going into water, so for really from wastewater um, treatments from water companies and from the agricultural industry. Um, but the housing industry was, I think, possibly harder hit because in, in under planning law, um, you do need planning permission for agricultural structures, but not for the agricultural use itself. Um, and um, so that that's basically how I did deal with um, a couple of um, agricultural clients as well who um, had to build structures and 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 came across um, having to deal with nutrient neutrality um, or uses which were thought to be agricultural 
or didn't end up being agricultural. And so therefore they had to go through the planning system and, and also deal with this issue. And what sort of levers did they pull to get around it or solve the dilemma? Oh, I think that they looked at it on a number of fronts. I mean, obviously they, 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 they consulted ecologists and, um, and, uh, um, obviously the, the methods out there that just had to be used on a case by case basis rather than so you know just just a normal um, methods or methods whereby you're trying to get the nutrients before they they hit the catchments or the, the water buddies um, like reeds etc and in, in cases like that you you then had to look at your viability. Um, if you had a certain amount of land earmarked for development and you suddenly had to, to attach this, um, additional bit of land to deal with, with, um, nutrients, that could be, that could be quite difficult, especially land, you know, land values, land that, that would be granted, um, planning permission for housing. Um, an agricultural client spoke with an ecologist and they built structures and site to either treat, um, um, the waste or to, uh, contain it. So it doesn't, and, you know, it doesn't go into pathways for for water buddies, and then eventually end up in the in the, in the catchment areas. And um, Natural England had a paid service. They probably still have a paid service, but but they they're now. Um, um, producing more and more sophisticated advice that can be used by everyone. So maybe there's less of a need for that now. Um, where they, they also advised, um, they could advise people. And obviously the difficulty they have, they're statutory consultee. They don't have endless resources. Um, and uh, sometimes it's difficult enough for them to even respond to planning applications. Um, obviously when that became, in 2019, 2020, when that became a new issue, they, were, they, they probably, their work probably increased tenfold. So, they, they, they had difficulties as well. So, so, so people made use of natural in England's way, but I think the difficulty was just the uncertainty at the time. And, and that could come, come from everywhere. And maybe a feeling that the water companies should be doing more. The water companies themselves said, you know, well, obviously we're trying to deal with it, but we have our own agenda. And our agenda is not to get your housing development built. So that, 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 that was an issue. So the government now appears that it's moved on from wanting to scrap these nutrient neutrality laws. There was a saga. We've covered it a lot <laughs> on End Report. Yeah. By the end of this month, the government is now set to publish a list of designated areas in which water companies are going to be obliged to upgrade their wastewater treatment works by April 2030. Yes. That's the date they want. All of this being done under the aegis of the uh, Leveling Up and Regeneration Act. Yes. So my question to you is, do you think it's right that water companies should be shouldering more of this problem? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I'm probably limited by you know the fact that I'm not a scientist or an ecologist, um, but from what I've looked at, I think house building seems to be in the minority in terms of costs, but they were the easiest to control. So I think that is right that water companies should focus on, you know, on this issue. Um, it may be that, like most things, they have their own agenda, which is to provide water, to deal with waste, not necessarily to enable development. Um, but the government's taken on this task, listened to house builders and said, look, we do have a housing problem in this country and it's not being helped by maybe, you know, I, I couldn't say whether this is right or wrong, but maybe disproportionately placing the blame on house builders, especially small and medium sized house builders. So I think to me, it would be 
determined by what the cause is and what we more effective in doing it. Obviously, you can't um, you can't make it a political issue where, uh, in my view, you shouldn't make it a political issue where you you've got to be seen to enable house building. You need to focus on the problem and the cause of the problem and resolving the problem and what will get there. Um, you know, for instance, obviously there's been a lot in the press about, you, if you read it on social media or, or, or anything, it is it, it, put in a very hyperbolic way, like, oh, um, water companies are just dumping untreated sewage into, and then you, you sort of start making links in your mind about that. But water companies are saying, well, we we wouldn't have done it if we thought there was a real risk. So it's just uncovering all that. And, um, you know, it, it's just very difficult to get the information out in that kind of detailed way to people. It's difficult enough, you know, obviously we, we all have day jobs to, to sort of dig into it. Um, but to me, the, the focus should be on the cause. And it certainly seems that house building is probably in the minority when it comes to the cause um, and possibly agriculture and the way we treat, we, we deal with waste is is probably the bigger culprit. So in, in, in that sense, it might be right. Staying with water companies, I have read some legal commentary on there's some concerns that with this new onus on uh, infrastructure upgrades, there's going to be a level of presumption of certainty that's brought with it. And that is, you know, basically, trust us, it's going to work. It's all great. Nitrate stripping, it does what it says on the tin or, you know, wastewater treatment works. Um, but at the same time, there is a thought in legal circles that, this could undermine the notion of the precautionary principle, which is now embedded within the government's environmental principles policy statement, which is under the Environment Act. Yeah. And I was just wondering, is that something we should be concerned about? Um, I I think that's very fair comment. It sounds like in some government publication, the push is let's just get past this problem and let's release all these houses. Well, I think the emphasis should be resolving the problem and the precautionary principle and issues of scientific doubt are very important. Oh, oh scientific certainty, really, I should say, are, are, are very important in resolving the, the issue. Um, so, and the legislation does say when we get to that update date, it's to be assumed you know, that um, there's not going to be any adverse effect. That is, um, that that's bare scrutiny, I think, as to can we really assume it? Um, um, how, how certain are we of it? How transparent are these processes going to be? Is information going to be out there? So, so you know, and I'm sure a lot of action groups, a lot of environmental action groups will have their eyes peeled. There's litigation all over the place, taking government to task, you know, all over Europe and, and probably all over the world. So, so that's, that's, I think that's very fair comment. And I think the update date is, I think it's 2030. Um, I, I read an article by, and I can't remember, I think a, a lady in um, Herbert Smith. Um, and she said, well, the development lives are uh, sort of 80 to 100 years. So they're, you know, the, the, you obviously you have a, an update date. What happens after that? Um, I suppose there will be um, regulations to you know make sure that that's maintained. So I think I think that that is fair comment. And I think um, I suppose looking back at the whole thing, especially when those um, controversial um, amendments came into the um, what what um, my planning colleagues used to call the lerb. You know, the those, lerb. Uh, yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you just tell us the lerb? There were, there were Excess jokes about them. Um, I believe in a thing called lerb and everything like that. <laughs> but, uh, but um, 
you know, that those were controversial and, and, and they were quite alarming. Um, but I've just tried to take a step back and say, as I said earlier, that um, I suppose it's understandable in a way that if the housing isn't causing a majority of the problem, then maybe that you can understand uh, how they've come, they've come to that conclusion. But I think there still needs to be some caution to make sure that you're focusing on the cause, um, you're focusing on the solution, and you're focusing on scientific resolution, not just expediency, not just let let's get the house um, the houses released, and obviously that you know, the government has a real buy-in um, in respect of this issue. And, you know, there's a lot of literature shows the government's dedication to it, towards this issue, but some some of the wording just, you know, it, it, it um, I won't go so, go so far to say it minimizes the problem, but the focus is, is you know, let, let's get these houses released. And, you know, and it, and it is important, you know, this investment is housing, it's, you know, it's, it's things that we all need to live, but we still need to sort of, in my view, focus on the causes and, and, and the solution. So we've done some data crunching here at ENDS that shows that 50,000 homes in England are currently frozen in the planning system. So this is this is the data for the last quarter, okay. and it's 50,000, we know, which is much smaller than some of the other numbers circulating in the field. Do you, do you think that minimises the problem, that figure? Um, I, I, oh, it, I mean, it's just so many variables. I mean, it depends on, as you say, w- what the comparables were. Um, it could show that, um, you know, the industry is moving on and uh, solutions are, are, be, are, are working. Um, it could be that um, planning permissions are slowly easing their way through the system. It could, it, the House Builders Federation could have taken into account developments that just didn't get to, you know, beyond pre-app, pre-application stage just because of this issue. Um, and that's because the HBF, they did some of their own number crunching, which has been in the yeah, national media. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, I, I, I think, I mean... To me, it does. It doesn't um, it really change my position, which is, it it was a difficult problem, and it it you know one at the time you couldn't get a sense um, of in just very practical terms how proportional the solution was, where we were going with solutions, and it was a logjam. It literally was a logjam. Whereas now it's beginning to feel more like um, a real effort has been made to move things on um, and the issue might become viability. There might be other issues that, 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 that come into it, but um, it, it's still, it's, it's a lot of houses. It's still a quarter of if, if 200,000 was the figure being stated before. Um, so it doesn't, I, I still think it, it's, it's an, a problem which we've, we've got to resolve for two reasons. One, the housing issue, but, and, and so it doesn't become a bigger problem. And we all know how strapped local authorities are, et cetera. Uh, and also obviously the, the actual issue on ground, you know, the, the, the issue with, with, with the, um, special areas of conservation. And it, and you're right. And it also regionally comparing the different regions, there's, there's, bigger problems in in others so for example broadland and south norfolk council i've got numbers here Twelve thousand plus homes currently frozen mm, yeah. somerset i know that's a region where you've been working Eight thousand six hundred, and then down to dorset 1000 plus so there are different different yeah. issues different problems um and on that point of regions you've worked a lot across england and wales yeah. i wanted to get your take on the different countries response and the regulators in the way they've approached implementing nutrient neutrality? I think there's been a lot of similarities between both of them and they both are having the effect of holding up housing. Um, And I've looked at Natural Resources Wales 
advice. And I suppose it's it's more subtle or less expressed in declaring a moratorium on housing. I might be wrong about this, but um, I don't think they've issued guidance to specific authorities like Natural England has. And I mean, on one hand, looking at their response, and I looked at their 2023 response, it it, it just seemed very sensible advice um, to local authorities and could I don't think it will prevent local authorities in, in Wales from from looking at it properly or, or doing their job properly, essentially, because they haven't been told not to to stop because obviously there are people all over the place, objectors that will, you know, you know, that, they, that will object if, if they just pass things through. So it all seems very sensible advice. It seems to me the tone, uh, you know, almost the content is very similar, but the tone is more, let's look at it as a case by case basis. Um, you know, it, it seems to be a, a, just a little bit more uh, pushing things forward and let, let's, let's look at it proportionally. But of course, I'm looking at 2023 advice compared to 2019 when that case came out and no doubt internal legal um uh, departments all over the country were saying, you know, we're, we're at real risk here if we if we continue to let, let this through. But that that was the sort of tonal difference I got in that, apart from not issuing advice to to specific um, authorities. Yeah, Natural did seem sort of far more bullish. Yeah. in their approach to yes. begin with, and we'll pull this lever if we want to, or Absolutely. if we have to. They yeah, we had to. And I'll just, I suppose, I'll I'll just add to that, uh, but probably Natural England has been more forthcoming with solutions as well. So that's, I suppose, the other side of the, um, uh, the other side of the coin. So, um, so yeah. Okay. Last question, hypothetical one. You're now in charge of nutrient neutrality in the government. You have all the budget you want. You have all the powers you need to go across any department you want. What would you do as the nitrogen SAR in your first 12 months in office? Well, coming from a planning perspective, so my first task is just to ensure that local planning authorities are properly resourced to deal with this issue. Um, obviously, they know, they know there's no sort of magic wand. You can't sort of magic up additional ecologists, but just to ensure that they've got the support, they continue to have the support they need and, and the budget, importantly, they need to deal with this issue. Um, as I've said earlier, I really focused on, um, I suppose, the cause and actually the solution. So um, I think I might shift the focus, um, whether it's in terms of resource, um, you know, scientists um, looking at plans, etc., on um, cause um, solutions. Um, but apart from that, I think that there's been a lot of resource, uh, you know, o- almost thrown at this issue. And a lot of the things the government are doing is exactly what I'd be doing. Um, the bottom line for me would be trying to resolve the issue, which I'm sure it is for the government. Um, and, um, but they, they of course have to balance, um, a lot of other, um, considerations, not, not, not least the need to have sufficient housing for for us in the country <laughs> and what about farmers would you do would you look at those guys and girls or um i will continue with um what's been done now i think i think it's important to work with farmers um but recognizing that um a lot of practices can you know add to the issue um so i think w- what what the government's doing in in 
supporting farmers, whether it's financially or otherwise, in looking at their infrastructure, in ensuring that they're blocking those pathways to the water bodies um, and practices uh, looking at you know, sort of spreading manure near, near riverbeds. It, it would be a real focal point for me, but I can't think of anything I would do that would be radically different. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on the Eco Chamber. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Pippa Neal and Tracy Lovejoy for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber, where I've learned that whistleblowers are champions, in this case within the EA, lifting the lid on some eyebrow-raising behaviour to massage corporate compliance targets. I've also learned that the OEP is barking very loudly at the government for a failure to get to grips with their own plan to improve the natural environment. But will they need to bite to get action? And finally, that nutrient neutrality is a complicated policy knot that even lawyers are still unpicking years on. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views, your opinions, criticisms, heresies. So you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.